<clears throat> so this evening as we uh, continue our series on eschatology, as that's what we've been doing, going through uh, the study of the end, I have the task uh, before me this evening of commenting on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So I'd ask that you turn there. It, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 989. So it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. So I have the distinct task or assignment of dealing with this particular passage for with a primary focus on the man of lawlessness. But before we drill down on that, allow me to provide uh, some <clears throat> other overarching information that I believe will be beneficial for us as we look at this particular passage and then even look back to some of the things that we've already heard and, and some of the things that we'll be looking at or hearing as we continue uh, towards the end of this particular series. Now, I don't remember if these particular terms were specifically spoken of in this series, uh, so I'm, I'm either going to f uh, foundationally introduce or reiterate them here. Now, there are three main labels that are given to folks who view the end times in a particular way. First, there's the preterist. This person sees all the prophecies communicated by Jesus and the apostles as having occurred in the first century. This included the persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero, that would be AD 64, and culminated in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Then there's the historicist. This person will assert that the apostles uh, saw the signs of the end as characterizing the entire period between Christ's first and second coming. Comment on this, commenting on this, Rick Phillips, who I'll often quote here, uh, wrote, Paul warned Timothy that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. That's 2 Timothy 3.1. Then he described the very troubles facing Timothy's church and common to our churches as well. Moreover, the Apostle John explicitly took a historicist view when he wrote, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, I was under this approach, Phillips goes on to say, that the Protestant reformers were virtually unanimous in declaring the Pope as the Antichrist, since the Roman Catholic Church seemed to be fulfilling his role of false teaching and government-sponsored persecution. The third label is that of the futurists. Now, they assert that almost all of the New Testament prophecy points to future events that have not yet happened but will occur immediately before Christ's return. Now, all three of these labels or approaches have their strengths and their weaknesses. But my counsel to you this evening as we look at our passage is not to allow yourself to fall into any one of these camps to the expense or exclusion of the others. We should instead recognize that all three have value when trying to come to a proper understanding of what the text, what texts such as Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, what we have before us now, and what some of the passages in the book of Revelation are communicating to us. Now, the first three gospel passages that I mentioned 
are commonly known to us as the Olivet Discourse. And as we look at the beginning portions of our passage and, and think back to what Pastor Caleb shared uh, with us last week, we should be able to see a connection between what Paul is communicating here and that which Jesus communicated on the Mount of Olives in those passages. In those passages, as you might recall, the action and, and question that prompted Christ's response was the disciples gawking in wonder at the temple. Then subsequently, uh, in response to Jesus' statement, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? Here in our passage, Paul was primarily uh, concerned with the effect of the content of what was being communicated to the Thessalonians under the guise of coming from the apostles. These counterfeiters were telling the people that Christ had already come and the promised gathering they were to experience was thus in question. And so with those preliminary thoughts in mind, let us now read our passage. Again, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to quickly <clears throat> shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they love the truth and so, <clears throat> and so be saved. Therefore God sends them, refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Heavenly Father, again we ask that you would reveal your truth to us. Guide us in all truth. Our Lord and Savior, he is truth. And so reveal him and magnify him as we now look at your word. So as I previously mentioned, my focus will be on the man of lawlessness mentioned in this passage. And as such, I'm going to put forth three questions concerning the noted lawless one. First, who is the lawless one? Who or what is the lawless one? What are his objectives? And what is the method or tool of operation? Before we go down that road, however, let me state the obvious. And that is there's all sorts of curiosities 
in this text that merit mentioning and addressing via some additional questions. In verse 5, Paul mentioned the fact that he had already told us this. I remember in seminary, a, a professor once said to us that certain passages, that when you look at the Bible, it's like hearing one side of a telephone conversation. You can only hear what one person is, is saying, but not the other. Here, it's a past telephone conversation. So not only are we only hearing one side, but we ain't hearing either side. And so because of that, there's certain things that are here, and it's like, well, what's going on here? And so among those things is uh, the question, what is the rebellion? Who or what is the restrainer? What is a seat in the temple of God? And what is the mystery of lawlessness? So since the rebellion comes first in our passage, let's answer that question first. So as we look at our text, I again remind you that Paul here is refuting the claim that Christ had already come. He's writing to restore minds that were probably rocked by what we were hearing, what they were hearing or reading. So we too are rocked by things that we see in our world, the things that are occurring around us. And, and so eschatology, the study of the end, teaches us how to act and how to see the things that are occurring around us. In verse 3, we hear of at least three vehicles of that message that was being passed along by those who were deceitfully passing themselves off as apostles or, or ones with that authority. There was a spirit. Hence in, in John, 1 John, who would have been aware of this, we hear, test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Not every spirit, no matter how godly it might seem to, to be on the onset, is from God. There's a spoken word. There was spoken word or a letter. Paul says, don't allow yourself to become mentally unhinged from that which you have been taught concerning the coming of our Lord, the day of our Lord. Don't allow yourselves to be deceived, he says. Then he begins to lay before them the reason why that is the case, for or because that day will not come until the following occurs or transpires. So first, again, it's the rebellion. There's two things. First, the rebellion. So what is the rebellion again? Here is where our adopting of the different aspects of the truly labels that I talked about comes into play. The preterist automatically recognizes that Paul is drawing from the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' teaching, which he gave shortly before his crucifixion and which Caleb preached on. He preached from Luke uh, last week. Uh, but listen to Matthew. In Matthew 24, 4b to 14, we hear Jesus saying, See that no one leads you astray. And notice the echoes of what you're, the same thing that's in our text. See that no one leads you astray. See that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquake in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. And so those particular things, the preterists would understand those things, some of those things were already happening in the first century. The historicists would likewise understand that some of those things were happening in the first century, but they're also happening in our time and they will come to a, 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 a even more burgeoning time 
or place in the future, okay? And then it goes on to say here in verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated, notice the word, by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away, that is apostatized, rebellion. When you see that, you hear the same word that is there in our passage, rebellion. It's the same thing, apostasy, rebellion. And betray one another. So many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, again, echoing our text, the love of many, many, there might be some in this church who, if these things came to pass now, you come to church. I know that for a fact there's millions of people across the United States. If the things that fell out that's in this text happen, these people will be out the door so fast you wouldn't know what hit them. So millions will grow cold, apostatize. The historicist recognizes again that some of these signs were given to characterize the entire age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And hence we hear of wars and, and rumors of wars, Ukraine, Afghanistan, all the things that are occurring and those kind of things. They're just but, but birth pangs, he says. They would rightfully, I, would, I believe, I would assert that the type of apostasy seen in that discourse has been occurring, again, all throughout history, but it will magnify in the end. The futurist, like the historicist, recognizes the end time connections revealed in that particular discourse. So there's coming a time now, this is the second part, uh, there's coming a time when the world will be totally, totally opposed to God and viciously against his people. That's what Jesus is communicating in, in Matthew 24, 9 through 10, which again says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake, and then many will fall away. Again, apostasy, rebellion, and betray one another and hate one another. There are people that are walking around thinking that this is going to happen after a rapture and stuff like that, and Christians won't be allowed to experience this. I do not believe that the text of Scripture teaches that, but Christians will indeed go through persecution. Paul is saying that the, the same thing here in our text, calling it rebellion. He's saying the same thing in our text. They will apostatize. He's calling it rebellion. The second thing our text tells us is that, uh, <clears throat> that must precede the coming of our Lord, that is, is a revealing of what or who our text calls the man of lawlessness, the core of what my assignment is. He's also called the son of destruction. So who or what is the man of lawlessness? Here are six things our text tells us concerning who this person is or what about this personal thing. The first thing, he will be an actual man towards the end. There is coming someone that is an actual man. There's every indication here that the man of lawlessness is not an angel or any kind of, of other being. He will be, future tense, a man. Thus far, I mentioned the correlation uh, between our passage and the Olivet Discourse. Well, we should also be aware that there are also correlations between our passage and the books of Daniel, 
and Revelation. Taking those books into consideration, Daniel 7, Daniel 11, uh, four beasts, along with several chapters and, and passages in Revelation, we arrive at the fact that this man of lawlessness is no less than the Antichrist himself. According to the Apostle John in, in 1 John, there have been many Antichrists starting in the times in which he lived. Now the second thing that I want to deal with here is he is absolutely thing that you should know about this man of lawlessness. First, he's a man. Secondly, he is absolutely lawless. Look at what it says concerning him in the beginning of verse 10. He is coming with all wicked deception. He is wicked to the core. He's like his daddy. Remember John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are like your father, the devil. He uh, was a murderer from the beginning. Well, he is wicked to the core. He's lawless. He's the opposite of everything that Christ is. He will represent again everything opposite of what Christ represents, affirms, and asserts. Third, he is born, our text tells us, for destruction. You know the only other person that the Bible talks about is born for destruction or, or the son of destruction? Judas. In verse 8, he reveals his ultimate fate. The Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his parousia, his coming. When Jesus comes, that's it. He's going to be done away with. It's not going to be some period of time where he's then going to be able to do additional things. No, he will be done away with then. Fourth, this man of lawlessness will proclaim himself to be God. His father, again, did the very same thing in the beginning. Remember, he said, I will, I will, I will exalt myself to the throne of God. This man acts exactly like his daddy, because as the text will show you, as well I'll show you, he's empowered by his daddy. So he, again, will proclaim himself to be God. Verse 12, 4 tells us he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And again, this should not surprise us because guess what? If he's the Antichrist and he's nothing but a counterfeit, then Jesus proclaimed rightfully that he was God. And so if the Antichrist comes and he's a counterfeit, Shouldn't he then also try to say the opposite and affirm himself in that way? And like, and sure enough, he did. Our fifth thing about this antichrist or man of lawlessness, he's coming by the power of Satan. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, his father, with all power and false signs and wonders. You know, there are people running around today looking for a sign. And if someone does a sign or a miracle for them, they will follow that person in a heartbeat because that person performed a miracle. But listen to what Deuteronomy 13 says. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. 
It doesn't say it, it was a deception. It said it actually came to pass. When, when Moses threw down Aaron's rod and it turned into a snake, right? Didn't Pharaoh's men also throw down something and it turned into a snake? That wasn't some magic, magic trick. It was actually a miracle. And so just the fact that a person performs a miracle does not mean that they belong to God. It does not mean that they belong to God. And so don't run after people because they seem to have some sort of seeming power. We follow those who preach and teach what thus saith the Lord in his word. Six, he will have unmatched ability to deceive. You think there's deception in the land today. Wait until this guy hits the scene. And there's another reason for that, and you'll hear me talk about that. But look at verse 9 again. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonder. This person will be powerful. You know, I think back at Job, and Job went before God and said, you know what, the only reason that Job is worshiping you. The only reason that Job is following you the way he is is because you're protecting him. It's because you're blessing him beyond uh, comparison, beyond anything. And then God turned to him and said, you know what? Do whatever you want with him. Just don't take his life. And after that happened, what happened? Massive storms, all sorts of stuff. I mean, just some incredible stuff that was happening. Boils popped up on his skin and everything else. That is some power. When's the last time you've been able to speak to the, the storm and it came? The other night, uh, Carl told me that Ridgeland had like some huge storm, and I still to this day don't know what happened. So I asked my wife, and she said, yeah, man, it was thundering and lightning like crazy. Folks, I slept through it because I ain't got no power to bring it to pass. You see? <laughs> so anyhow, the point that I'm making here, you should understand that this deceiver, this lawless man of lawlessness will have great, great, significant, unmatched ability to deceive, okay? And sadly, there are many who will readily accept the lie and not the truth. I'll talk some more about that later, but for now, I want to pivot into answering the questions pertaining to who or what the text refers to when it speaks of the restrainer and the temple of God and, and what is the mystery of lawlessness. Again, each one of these things can, can fill, just one sermon can address each one of these things, okay? So I, I, if I don't go too deep, understand that we have to move, and so my core needs to be the man of lawlessness, all right? So in verses 6 and 7, we're introduced to the term, to that term restrainer, hearing, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And so who or what is the restrainer? Again, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to come right out and tell you that I agree with uh, Rick Phillips again and, and G.K. Beale who state that the restrainer is God himself. Not just the Holy Spirit as asserted by dispensationalists, but God himself. Let me remind you, let me remind you of my sermon on Revelation 20 some weeks ago. 
particularly verses 1 through 3, which reads, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Commenting on that particular passage, I mentioned that I believed in line with the reformers that the passage was not speaking of a literal thousand-year period, but was alluding to the time of Christ between Christ's first and second coming. Now notice the purpose for which Satan was bound in Revelation 20, so that he could not deceive the nation anymore. That's verse 3. Now notice what happens when the restrainer is removed in our passage. The nations are totally steeped in deception. They fall for deception big time. The ones that are not deceived is the body of Christ. They're not deceived. They're persecuted. I believe God is speaking. Anthropomorphically, you know the word I'm trying to say, in Revelation 20. Speaking in such a way that he's speaking for men to understand. When God speaks, we don't understand if he, unless he speaks the way we think and understand things. So he's speaking to us, anthropos, to man, in a man-shaped fashion so we can understand. But the reality of the situation is God does not need a key or chains. Neither can Satan who is not some physical being, can be chained with a chain, a physical chain, or put in a, a, a physical pit, okay? MacArthur, or rather Phillips, talks about the fact that there he believes that the angel in Revelation 20 is actually the will of God, in the sense that the same way God, think about this, God called everything into existence, by the word of the, just a word. So why does he need now to get a chain or an angel or anything like, like that? All he has to do is declare Satan off limits or the, the, the church off limits so that God can reap his people from every corner of the earth and, that, and it will be so. And so the mystery, <clears throat> so in the end of Revelation 20, after he, that is Satan, it says he must be released for a little while. And who would I say releases him? The same person that is in our passage, the restrainer. God is the one that releases Satan for a season so that he could fulfill his purposes. And here in our passage, the restrainer releases again. The, release, the restrainer is taken away in that sense and what happens then is not that the people of God get re, um, deceived. Remember, it says that the very elect in Matthew, if it were possible, would be deceived. But you know what? It's not possible if you truly belong to God. It is those who do not belong to him that will be deceived. And so the mystery of lawlessness is at work, but not fully so. 
because Satan's activity was only restricted, not fully curtailed. Thus he goes about deceiving those who are his, but has no power to restrict the knowledge of salvation from those who belong to God, from God's elect. As for the mystery of lawlessness, let me again quote or turn to Phillips, who wrote, this mystery relates to, the, to Daniel's prophecy of the abomination that makes desolate. That's in chapter 11 of Daniel. The prophet foresaw idolatry within God's temple as the work of the Antichrist. By speaking of the mystery of the Antichrist's work, Paul is saying that Daniel would not have foreseen exactly how this would come about. In particular, in saying the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, the apostle indicates that what Daniel foresaw about the end of history is also a threat that is presently at work within history. Beale writes, Paul sees that though this fiend has not yet come so visibly as he will at the final end of history, he is nevertheless already at work in the covenant community through his deceivers, the false teachers. They're all in the church. This teaching agrees with John's warning that as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, he goes on to say, so now many Antichrists have come. Even now, behind the scene, the same work that will come to mighty expression before the end is opposing the gospel. John Stott, concerning this very thing, writes, his antisocial, anti-law, anti-God movement is at present largely underground. We detect its subversive influence around us today in the atheistic stance of secular humanism, in the totalitarian tendency of extreme left-wing and right-wing ideologies, in the materialism of our consumer society, which puts things in the place of God, in those so-called theologies which proclaim the death of God and the end of moral absolutes, and in the social permissiveness which cheapen the sanctity of human life, sex, marriage, and family, all of which God created or instituted. Brothers and sisters, this stuff is already among, among us. The lawlessness, you've heard me recently preach about it. And according to John Piper, though, we're moving forward here. The biggest reason, as relayed to, to us in our texts, for this state of turning away from God and the things of God is a man's, is man's refusal to love truth. Therefore God sends them, verse 11 says. Well, look at verse 10. Look at the reason given for those who are perishing. Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God, verse 11, sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They did not love the truth of God. And who is the truth of God? Jesus Christ said, I am the way. I am the truth. They did not love the word of God. They did not love God himself. But what did they love? The pleasure. And so as we've been going through Romans 1, we've already heard that man did not want to retain the knowledge of God, but he loved the creature rather than the creator. And so here, because of that, and that's why I keep 
harping on the fact that it's not those who are truly regenerated by God that will be deceived. It is those who do not have the spirit, the indwelling spirit of God to reveal truth to them. The rest of the nations will be deceived by the man of lawlessness. And the the man of lawlessness will initiate a great persecution against the church of, of God. Folks are saying, well, you know, man will not... Uh, suffer the wrath of God. No, if you are a saint, you will not suffer the wrath of God. But you indeed, if you are around, you will suffer under the man of lawlessness. That is a fact that scripture communicates. And concerning this hardening of the heart, as we see here, again, because they took pleasure in unrighteousness. If you remember, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. In Romans 1, the people were given up. Why? Because they had already given God up. So God gives them over to their nature. Verse 13 says that we, however, and we're not looking at that, but when you look at verse 13, because I don't want to end with bad news, you see that we who are saved will not endure this stuff. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That is not a description of those who belong to Christ. If you're here this evening and you belong to Christ, that is not a description of you at all. That is a description of those who are perishing. If you have not professed the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord, you will be among those who are even now being deceived. Even now in the mystery of lawlessness, in the unfolding of lawlessness, we don't know how it's going to unfold, but you will be enveloped in it even now. And you see that in our media. You see that all over right now. You look around and you say, my goodness, how could they believe that? You know why? Because they don't have what you have, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God to reveal truth. And that is why it is only through the grace of God that we are protected from the deception and from the lawlessness of the lawless one. And what I mean by protected, I mean protected from falling to that deception and not professing Christ. We're not protected from physical harm. We're protected from deception and not knowing Christ. And it's in the middle of anything that we suffer, Christ is still with us and we can bear up under it. And so that is what I would say to you, this passage says, concerning the man of lawlessness. There's so, so, so much more that can be said. And so what I'm asking is that you would come to my Sunday school this summer, (laughs) where I'm going to be, again, speaking of all the end time views specifically, okay? But for now, know this, God is keeping us by his grace He's called us. He is the one that's called us, sanctified us, and saved us from all things. But we should not be deceived by anything or anyone that comes along claiming things that are against God's word. We have his word. We have his spirit. And we will endure to the end because he is the one that's persevering us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for saving us from sure and sudden doom, 
As we've looked at this particular passage, I'd like to say once again that not all of us agree in the same way concerning these things. Even among uh, the pastoral staff, there are things that we look at and wonder at. And so we pray that you would keep us and guide us in our thinking concerning these things. We pray overall that we would know and understand that you are speaking to us so that we would know or, or consider how now should we live and be comforted knowing that you are on your throne and you will bring all things to pass for your glory and for our betterment. So we pray these things in Jesus' name.